Hi, this is Liz Tinkham, and welcome to Third Act, a podcast about people embracing the third act of their lives with a new sense of purpose and direction. The third act begins when your script ends, but your show's not finished. Today, I talk with Lori Terwinski, the DEI expert. So how does a PhD in economics slash stand-up comic become one of the leading thought leaders on diversity, equity, and inclusion with a focus on ageism? Well, after Lori got booted out of drama school while in college, she was told to do something technical. So indeed she did, earning a PhD in economics. But she always had the itch to perform. So mid-career, she went back to performing, becoming a stand-up comic in LA for six years. But the Great Recession of 2008-2010 pushed her back to a higher-paying job, and after much searching, she landed in finance at ARP's Public Policy Institute. As part of that work, she started researching and writing about the issues of unemployment in older workers. Today, she continues in this role, as well as teaches a class on the subject of DEI at NYU. Join me as she offers advice on what corporations and employees can do to combat ageism in the workplace. Oh, and something really fun. She tells me how to become a National Park Service park ranger. So stick around to the end, because after my discussion with Lori, we all might want to be doing a stint at one of the national parks. Welcome, Lori, to the podcast and yet another professor at NYU and again, another friend of the uh, Overachieving Friends of Bev Truly Club. So thanks very much for coming to the show. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. I looked at your LinkedIn, which I always do in preparation, and you have the sort of the funniest comment I've ever seen in the about section, which I'll read. And it says at the end, my specialties are varied and frankly, fascinating. So say more about the specialties. I've never seen anybody have that in their LinkedIn. Well, I, I was hoping to have a catchy LinkedIn profile. So thank you for confirming that it's working. Uh, check. Uh, the, the, the frankly fascinating is about the fact that I am a little bit left brain and right brain. So, you, you know, we often hear about people being, you know, right brain, you're very creative and artistic. Otherwise, you know, you're more, more left brain, you're analytical and methodical. And I happen to be both. And that comes from being a PhD economist and a stand-up comedian. <laughs> I love this. And we're going to get more to it here in a second. But maybe to start with some dark humor, you, when we were prepping, you were telling me you were a drama major to start at Catholic University, but you were rejected. So what happened and what did you end up doing after that, sort of in your first act? So the, the first act was a, a dream to always make people laugh. Okay. And at the time, I thought the way you did that was by going to college and studying drama. I found out that uh, they're not the same thing. They, they are related skill sets, but I was told to get off the stage and go into something technical. <laughs> and so I pivoted. And so it was, it was the first time in my life that I had a major pivot. And I ended up joining the Department of Economics and studying financial management. And you said you, your subsequent jobs in financial management, you kind of nailed the technical in your jobs at the U.S. government, the Trade Association, and Freddie Mac. Did you like what you were doing? So in, in each of those jobs, my skill set usage was a little bit different. And so uh, I found all of the jobs challenging to a point, and then I, I wanted something different. So it was it was a matter of mastering a position and then seeking to 
continue developing in other ways. So, so I went from doing government statistical preparation to policy research work at the Bond Market Association and then moved over to Freddie Mac where I was actually in a business uh, that was trading bonds. So it was, you know, sort of for me, a, a complete trajectory. Yeah. So you end up quitting though, Freddie Mac, right? And to pursue stand-up comedy. Now, uh, and how many years into your career was that? So it would have been about uh, 15, 15, 16 years yeah. into my career. Yes. I, I mean, my stomach just gets nervous thinking about that, that you would walk away from your job. So what gave you the courage to do that? And, you know, what, what did you think you were going to do? So the courage came from two things. Uh, number one was I finished working on my PhD and successfully submitted my doctoral dissertation. And that was something that I had been working on for 10 years Okay, because I was working full time while I was in school. And it was a really tough challenge to do the research and work full time. So having completed that, I, it was, you know, a, a very great achievement. And then I felt free to pursue really my, what I believe is my true calling, which is making people laugh. At the time, I, I was in a, a relationship with a supportive partner who is now my spouse. Okay. And I was encouraged to quit my job and pursue the dream. And so I did just that. I walked away from a job and studied stand-up comedy out in Los Angeles. How'd it go? It went really well. Yeah. Uh, uh, yes. I, uh, we, we had a, an eight-week course. At the end of it, I was asked to join a comedy show at the, the comedy store in L.A., and every couple of months, I would fly to L.A. and perform in a show. And do there. the show. Yeah. Yep. And yeah. how long it was did you end not up? for money. <laughs> I've heard that. How long did <laughs> yeah. you end up being a stand-up comic then? So I, I missed the intellectual challenge and the, the stimulation of all the years of knowledge that I had accumulated uh, in my earlier career. Uh, and I, you know, I, I was thinking about the future and financial stability and, you know, with a financial background, I, I did understand that it would be good to earn money again mm -hmm. and have have a little bit more income coming into the household. So I want to just ask you a question about being a stand up comic, because maybe people who are listening might think, oh, that sounds like an interesting thing to do in their third act. I mean, in order to make a living at it, what what has to happen? What do you like? What achievements do you have to have? How do you make that work? So. The first thing you need is a lot of material. Okay. And so when I, you know, for that six years, when I was working as a stand-up comedian full time, it was writing every day. And then it was practicing almost every day, going to every open mic in town and testing all of the new material. And it's, it's really, a, it's an iterative process. Uh -huh. you, you perform, you, I, I, at the time it was cassette tapes and I would, you know, now it's a lot easier with iPhones, yeah. but, but it would be recording every set, listening to it, playing it back, figuring out where I could make it better. So, you know, working on the timing, working on the exact wording. So, so for me, it was a, an analytical approach to comedy. Like I do most things, uh, a lot of research was involved and, and, and a lot of practice and a lot of research. Mm -hmm. And then do you eventually get a break or 
figure out somebody asks you to join a show or what happens? So, so some of it is, you know, like for, for the Los Angeles opportunity, it was being asked to, to join a show once every six weeks. Uh, those shows were bringer shows where I was supposed to bring 10 people with me to the show to make sure that the, the comedy club makes money. Yeah, exactly. Uh, right. So, cause there was always a, a, tr- a two drink minimum. So, <laughs> uh, so, so there was that opportunity for stage time in a really great location. Uh, then it was also being picked up by a booking organization where they would get, you know, bet this was again, pre great iPhone and instantaneous communication times you know, you would get an email and it would say, we need somebody for upstate New York on this date who's available. And then you, you know, the first person to write in would get the gig. So it was, you know, it was competition for, for paid work in that way. You know, the, the people who can make a living at it are, are people who ultimately end up on television and, you know, compete on some of the, you know, last comic standing or America's got talent and, you know, you get more bookings with that kind of notoriety. So you do that for six years. You've got a PhD in economics, right? So you're thinking, hmm, maybe I need to make some more money. So, and I think you also told me that's sort of right at the time of the recession as well, the Great Recession. So what happens and what do you end up doing then? So what happened was I applied for many jobs And in a two-year period, I applied for over 150 jobs. And I had about, I think I got two interviews. Oh, my gosh. And one offer. And at the time, it was for $40,000. And I would have to clean the gentleman's desk and make coffee every day. Oh, my gosh. As an econ PhD. Yes. and, And actually, at the time, I also went back to school to, I went to Georgetown University for a certificate, uh, an executive certificate in financial planning, because I always wanted to take the economics background and do more with it. And so I thought becoming a certified financial planner would give me another qualification to, to help me in the workplace and, and in the job market, but also so that I could help people with planning for, you know, for, the, for their futures, because so many people today don't have financial planning as part of, you know, what they do. Right, right. So what job do you end up getting? So I ended up getting a job at the AARP Public Policy Institute. Um, and this was one of these situations where I, I was looking at a publication that that used to post jobs, and, and they still do it, now it's online. It was called Job Openings for Economists. It's uh, oh. A, a very stunning, exciting name brought to you by the American <laughs> Economic Association. And um, they were, there was a job for the, a mortgage finance person to work on issues related to both foreclosures and, you know, the, the, the things that were, we were facing in, in 2010, you know, the aftermath of the recession, uh, lots of home loss Yep. And, and mortgage difficulties. And so it was one of these situations where I read the job description and I had every line item in the job description. And mm. so I applied for the job and I knew nobody there. And I ended up getting uh, called for the interview and getting the job. So, uh, you know, it's it was the one time in my life where every single line item I could check off. Mm. Oh, I'm and glad you got it. Glad they well, made and, it I, and I, I mention it because 
so many times for women, we see a job and we read the description and we say, well, you know, I have four of the five things or I have three of five and I, I'm not fully qualified. I'm not going to apply. And so women self-select out of the process. Uh, but on the other hand, we, we understand through research that, that men will, will have one thing out of five and, and apply. And so that's the difference. Yeah. Yesterday I was talking with uh, Stella Lupashore, who I don't know if you know her. She's also I do. at NYU, right? And so she's going to be in an upcoming episode. And she was saying the same thing that and, and it gets worse because the algorithms that now sort through resumes match what you write to the skills and then they take you out as well. So you have to really work on tuning it. So at the ARP, you're studying financial issues in this public policy institute, but you also end up writing on unemployment and older workers. And so talk about that. So I was asked to lead a multi-year project back in 2013. It was called the future of work at 50 plus. And the main purpose of, of the project was to look at the Great Recession and to try to understand what ended up happening to older workers. So we looked at things like unemployment, but we also looked at job skills. We looked at the workforce development program. We brought in outside experts and asked them to answer a series of questions so that we could learn different, you know, different ideas from them about how to approach the problem. You know, it also included public events. So we did a lot of different things to study older worker employment. What'd you find? So we found that for the, in the recession, a lot of older workers who were reemployed ended up switching occupations. And in many of those cases, they, they were employed at lower rates of pay than their prior job. We also found that it took older workers longer to become reemployed. And that's still true today. Have you seen any outcomes yet from the pandemic on older workers as you sort of fast forward to this crisis? So we've, we've seen some of the jobs have come back. So we've had some, some recovery in older worker employment, but we are also seeing that there are, are still fewer older workers than there were before the pandemic. Now, some of that is, is natural in the sense of, you know, people retire, they exit the workforce, they, they decide to leave. But some of it may be that people left the workforce because they were laid off and then they gave up looking for a job. So, so we do see that, you know, that does happen some of the time. And there are sometimes barriers for older workers obtaining employment, things like age discrimination, for instance. And with the rampant employment opportunities that are out there now, you know, you see them obviously in restaurants and things like that. But from what I understand, the job market is really hot. Do you think that people will come back out of the workforce, some of these, or back out of retirement or pre-retirement, the folks that have left or sort of got pushed out? Or do you think we've lost an entire generation of workers through this pandemic? So I, I think there are a lot of people who still want to work and, and part of the reason is, right, we're, we're seeing a lot longer longevity. Many people are living longer than, you know, than their parents or grandparents. Uh, it's, it's common to know someone who's in their 90s or even 100 years old. And we have a, a retirement system that, that used to be based on, you know, your highest 35 years of pay. 
and and then you would retire in the mid sixty range or thereabouts and and live for a few more years and now it's different you you could retire at sixty five and live another thirty years and so the question is how are you going to finance your life for thirty years and if if social security is the only funding source you have in retirement, uh, it it may be difficult. So we have people staying in the workforce longer because they need to. We have people who are listeners, who are HR professionals, who are currently trying to find people to come and fill their jobs. Based on what you write about and what you know, what advice would you give them in terms of how how do they create a good atmosphere for older workers to either stay or come back into their into their workforce. So so one thing I advise companies to do is to look at your hiring process. You know, where are you sourcing your candidates or what what does your your job application process look like? So we're seeing a, a huge shift to automation and artificial intelligence being used to to do the screening. And so for for a candidate who knows that certain keywords are going to be used to sort them out or certain skill sets are going to be interpreted in a certain way by the AI. If you're a candidate who, ha- who knows that or you're working with a, a career coach who can sit with you and your resume and help you tweak it so that it is more readable for AI, you will have a, potentially a, you know, an advantage over someone who doesn't know any of that. And so I think the way we recruit people has changed a great deal. And I think the knowledge of how it all works is not shared with everyone who's looking for a job. And so I think that is a key way that we can help more older workers get back to work, you know, find another job. It's, it's helping people understand how the, the HR tech works today. And so I could use a career coach. Is, are there any online resources? Does the ARP offer any help or guidance in the resources that they have? So ARP offers some, some job seeker tools. And so, so we do have a number of resources available to job seekers. The other thing we do a lot of is we work with employers to try to help them understand that there is great value in hiring older workers so we do that in a number of ways. We have an employer pledge program where we ask employers to sign on to a pledge, which basically states that they, they believe in equal opportunities for all workers, regardless of age, that they're open to hiring experienced workers, that there should be a level playing field for people, and that, you know, that age diversity and inclusion is a good thing for an organization. Are you able to peg like how many companies take this pledge? So currently we have over 1,700 companies have signed the pledge and new ones join every day. Well, that's good. That's good. So again, if so a couple of things. So if I'm an HR professional and I'm trying to make my employer, the person I work for, age friendly. So A, I want to look at what ARP is. I want to sign the pledge. Mm-hmm. I want to maybe tune my AI or look at the programs that it's doing and and think about keywords, what else would I do as an employer? So AARP has another uh, set of tools and resources available. It's called the Living, Learning, and Earning Longer Collaborative. 
And this is a, a partnership that AARP formed with the World Economic Forum and the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD. And what the collaborative does is it collects information on promising practices from employers around the world. And they share the information on a website and there are there is research and tools and, and other things available to employers so that they have the opportunity to learn what other employers are doing. Well, that's a great idea. And we'll put that in the show notes. Does anything, as you think about what's in there, any good examples jump out? One of the things that stands out when we look at diversity, equity, and inclusion research is that age is often overlooked within DEI programs. And so to the extent that that diversity, equity, and inclusion departments and, and chief diversity officers can think about adding age as a dimension of what they look at, I think it could really help. We know that as of July, there were over 10 million open jobs in the United States. And so, so we also know that there are millions of unemployed older workers who are seeking work. And so wouldn't it be a great thing if we could figure out how to get those older workers connected with the open jobs? Now, how do men and women experience ageism differently in in your research? So AARP has been conducting survey research on age discrimination for many years. And our most recent survey found that 78% of older workers reported having seen or experienced age discrimination in the workplace. Now, the differences between men and women, 76% of women have seen or experienced it. And and for the first time ever, I think men, 79%. So this year, the, the men came in higher. I think that was the first time that we've seen that. But, you know, and the other, the other piece of, of the story when you're talking about discrimination is you have the intersectionality of other dimensions of diversity in this. So if you are a woman and you are likely to, you know, depending on your your field or or the organization, you may experience gender-based discrimination. And then on top of it, age. And then if you're from a racial or ethnic minority, another layer. And so it's the intersectionality of discrimination that is also having an impact on many older workers. Oh my goodness, oh, tough. I'm glad to hear about all the work you're doing. What, so what's next in your work at, at, with the Institute? So I am continuing to, to support our efforts to fight age discrimination. So that is, that is always going to be a part of, of my portfolio. I intend to look at mortgage foreclosure issues in the next year because coming out of the pandemic and, and seeing financial relief programs scaled back, uh, it will have an impact. And, and we know from the Great Recession that the experience of foreclosure was different for older people than younger people. So I'll keep looking at that. And the other thing that I really look forward to continuing is, is teaching at NYU. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that. Tell us about the class you teach. So right now, teaching a class in diversity, equity, and inclusion metrics. It's part of the NYU certificate program in DEI. And the point of the course is to help people come up with better and more meaningful measures of DEI goals. 
so that instead of you know saying okay we're going to count the number of heads we have that fall <laughs> how many into men, this how many women how many black how many white right yeah, we right. Do that. we yeah. we want to we want to do better than just counting heads and so it's about you know what are other things we can measure let's look at the systems we have in place for hiring and what are what are different ways we can approach getting to better better representation in our workforces. So it's, it's a great experience for me because most of my students are people who are in HR capacities at various companies. And so I always make sure I mention the age, the age issue. And, and many of my students are younger and it's the first time they've ever thought about age. And so you're measuring that, you're teaching them how to measure that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, well, I'm teaching I'm teaching people how to think about all the dimensions of diversity instead yeah. of just, you know, one or two. It's it's all of it. I teach at the University of Washington and I have found that my students are more in tune with the younger students are more in tune with these things than say the people that I worked with a few years ago, right? They they have a much better understanding of the importance of DEI. And mm-hmm. how it's not just a checkbox. And mm-hmm. um, I hope, hopefully, do you see the same thing with your professionals? I do. And, and there's great interest in these courses that NYU is offering. And so it, it speaks to the fact that this is an area where people want to learn more. And I think corporations and organizations are trying to embed it into everything that they do. And the only way they can do that is if more people understand that it's, it's more than just one thing and it's, and it's not a checkbox. It's, it's work. I almost titled this podcast, I'm Not Done Yet. So gosh, you've had a, a, you know, back to your LinkedIn and all of your varied specialties and frankly fascinating interests. What else are you going to add to that list in your life? So I'm going to continue conducting research on diversity, equity, and inclusion issues. So those are are definitely going to be part of anything that I do going forward. I have another interest, though, that wasn't in the LinkedIn, and that is I actually had a job as a park ranger early on in my career, and I would love to join the National Park Service again sometime because I absolutely loved that job. This did not come up. Where were you a park ranger? <laughs> so uh, I was a park ranger at Ford's Theater National Historic yeah, Site. Yes. And, and I did lectures about the Lincoln assassination. Okay. But but the other the other piece of me is I am an avid bird watcher. Okay. And last summer I started a, a course offered by Cornell Bird Biology. And it's an ornithology course. Oh, my gosh. Uh, all about uh, the, you know, bird, bird biology. And, do you, do you and sleep? Okay. So I do. you're teaching a class, you're at the ARP, you're, you're teaching an ornithology class. So you do get some sleep. I'm taking the ornithology class. I do sleep, but I, I'm not done with the ornithology class. It's, <laughs> it's uh, self-paced online and I'm, I'm okay. taking a little long with it, but it's, it's great fun. So I want to just say one more thing about the park ranger and kind of goes to this discussion on age. There was a very interesting article that you probably read about the hundred year old park rangers in the New York Times this past weekend. Did you see that? Yes, I did. Now, I just want to ask, because again, the third act, I've got listeners who are always trying to figure out what am I going to do next? 
frankly, I'm a huge national parks person. So if I wanted to be a park ranger, what do I need to do? So you need to go to usajobs.gov and search for park ranger jobs. Um, they, they're a little bit hard to come by in that many of them are temporary. Okay, and, well, that might not uh, be bad. But, but they, I, it is my understanding they do have a program where people often travel to different national parks after they retire and they work on a temporary basis and go from different park to different park you know, like they, they get summer employment, say at Grand Canyon, and then they, you know, then they don't work for part of the year. But there, there are uh, these temp jobs avail- available within the park system. I'll tell you what, we'll look that up for the show notes because I think that's an interesting mm-hmm. third act. And do you have a particular park in mind? Not yet, but I am very fond of Grand Canyon. I, I did avail myself of the mule ride to, to the bottom of the canyon. <laughs> my husband in, and son did that once. I, I did mule it. Mule kicked in, my son. So, oh, oh no, no, I couldn't yeah, walk yeah. well for about a week, but it was great fun. <laughs> okay, so maybe, maybe in your fourth or fifth act, we'll see you out there with the, the Stetson hat on and everything else. That is quite so. possible. Okay. Well, Lori, it's been great fun talking to you. And thank you for all you do with your work at ARP to support the demographic of sort of aging. And uh, as I said, this, the items that you mentioned we'll publish in the show notes and we'll look forward to following your next adventure as a park ranger. Well, thank you very much. I, I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for joining me today to listen to the Third Act podcast. You can find show notes, guest bios, and more at thirdactpodcast.com. If you enjoyed our show today, please subscribe and write a review on your favorite podcast platform. I'm your host, Liz Tinkham. I'll be back next week with another guest who's found new meaning and fulfillment in the third act of their life.